Blog Talk Radio. for me to start talking, isn't it? Well, I was just uh, drifting along at that lovely ballad by Miss Heidi Holton. Um, hey, I'm back. Indeed, I am. How long has it been since I last spoke to you? Um, been a while, hasn't it? I meant to check the date on that last show. It was some time ago, wasn't it? Yes, I resurrected from the ashes and am flying high and on fire like the fabled Phoenix of old. And, uh, isn't that a, isn't that a disturbing image? Um, the, the gnarly and bedraggled and somewhat haggard, uh, reverend <laughs> flying around on fire with the pink plumage. Uh, it's, uh, um, uh, well, maybe it's, I don't even want to dwell on it. Don't you want to dwell on it, but yes, broadcasting once again from divine harmony, Spiritual Church in Knoxville, Tennessee, live and on the air. Anything goes. Nothing censored. Nothing gained. I just made that up. Nothing censored. Nothing gained. Isn't that great? I should have that embroidered on a T-shirt and uh, put it up for sale. The Crystal Silence League Hour. Nothing censored. Nothing gained. You get it? You get it? See what I did there? Hey. All right. I think last time we were talking, it was... uh, we had uh, dipped our toes into the murky waters of Buddhism. And uh, if you've ever seen the river Ganges, indeed, murky waters is an appropriate term for that. Um, and we have uh, lots of stuff. We've got a regular scheduled program. We're going to talk about uh, the Presley Bluestone as our rock of the week. And we're going to go pray for a little bit on the Crystal Silence League website. 
at www.crystalsilenceleague.org, and uh, we'll talk a little bit. And uh, uh, I got off on a tangent earlier, too, reading about some stuff, um, and uh, I'll talk about that for a little bit, too. We'll, whatever we have time for tonight, you know, we have some time for stuff. And, uh, gosh, we have a lot, of, uh, a lot of things to talk about. We're just right off the, uh, the very successful first virtual Hoodoo Heritage Festival, and I hope those of you who attended had a great time and uh, uh, mostly organized by our uh, heroic and somewhat eccentric shock doc, Dr. Jeremy Weiss, with uh, great assistance from the uh, AISC and uh, many of the members uh, presented there, and it went off very well uh, to the surprise of many people, including uh, Dr. Jeremy Weiss himself, I think. It was very good, very successful, uh, very nice. Uh, much camaraderie and hoodooism was shared at that festival. Uh, it was very good. And uh, the um, 2021 is in the planning stage right now. Uh, Miss Robin is uh, heading that one up, and uh, it, it's uh, getting off the ground even as we speak. So news about that as I find out about it. And I should because, you know, I'm on the board of bishops, so. You know, from my ear, out my lips, into this microphone, and into your ear. So, there we go. As you know, the Crystal Silence League was founded around 1917 or so by Mr. Claude Alexander Conlon for the purpose of projecting positive prayer and affirmation for all those who were in need of same. They asked for this by writing their prayer petition on postcards, letters, um, no email in those days, no electronic media. There were telegraphs, eventually telephones, and uh, most people didn't have those in those days. We're looking at the Great Depression hitting the country at one point. Postcards, letters, flooding into Mr. Conlon's office, and he would stack these up and put his crystal ball on them and pray. Well, look here, joining us in chat with his ears a-burning, Mr. Dr. Jeremy Weiss, Rabbi Jeremy Weiss himself. Here we go. And uh, just dropped in. We were just talking about you, Dr. Weiss, about what a success the uh, Virtual Hoodoo Heritage Festival was. Hey, do you too. And, uh, oh, the Crystal Science League. And he would pray and send out through the medium of his crystal ball, his mighty crystal ball. Uh, and he had a big one, uh, crystal ball that is. He had huge hands, gigantic hands. He was a very tall man, close to seven feet tall, had huge hands. He would hold this mighty crystal ball uh, in his hands and uh, project with powerful intention, positive prayers and affirmations for all the dedicants of the Crystal Silent League. And when he passed into the silence himself around 1954, the League went with him until um, <clears throat> about 2007 or so, I think, when uh, it rose from the ashes in the form of Missionary Independent Spiritual Church via the internet at www.crystalsilenceleague.org. And that's where we'll go in just a few minutes to um, send out our own prayers and affirmations. But first, let's talk about our crystal of the week, the uh, Presley Bluestone. And uh, the Presley Bluestone uh, is named because of the Presley Mountains, where it was originally and mostly found, and if you are lucky and diligent, you can get a piece of it from Presley Mountain because 
uh, Presley Bluestone is the same stone that Stonehenge is made from and is attributed with uh, many magical qualities. You can get orbs made from it. You can get palm stones. You can get chunks of it. Um, and um, it's a very popular stone. When you look at it, it looks like a hunk of granite, basically, which is what it is. And uh, it's usually grayish blue. And it's uh, found, you can find it on the ground. Uh, if you people collect it, you know, you might not be able to, but sometimes rains will uh, unearth it. And it's got uh, blue and gray and black and green, sometimes white spots on it. Uh, it's an abundant stone. It's a uh, uh, it's pretty much everywhere in the United Kingdom. And um, <clears throat> why would you even want this? Well, it is very good for grounding uh, you to the earth. Uh, it resonates to what's called the earth chakra, which is the one that's right below your feet and anchors you to the earth. And um, it's uh, it's very good for bringing up, for instance, uh, a lot of the work, especially work, uh, if you're using um, the, the external chakras, uh, which many people don't even work with or even know, about. you know, you have the uh, the soul chakra uh, uh, and the earth chakra. The soul chakra is right above your head. The earth chakra below your feet. But you're dealing with issues that are uh, you're stuck in the past. And by past, I don't mean ten years ago. I mean hundreds of years ago, past life issues, and you can't get past them. And if you work in the psychic industry, you hear this, you know, you hear uh, people say, yeah, well, you know, me and this guy were mates and, you know, we're meant to be together and the relationship you, you realize is really destructive, but it's like, you know, we're twin flames. We're soulmates. We keep coming together. We come apart. Well, you know, here, okay. Calling Presley Bluestone. It moves you past that kind of crap. And uh, so it's really good for healing that kind of thing. And even, stuff that's passed in this life you're stuck in a place this will help you move past it and um uh also being a, an earth grounder uh if you lose your determination your forward momentum this can help connect you to that earth energy that gives you that oomph to get past it um uh if you're a procrastinator you start things but don't finish them this can help you with that um <clears throat> I, I found it most valuable people in past lives they they keep repeating the same thing over and over and it's uh, uh, uh revealed to be a past life issue that you, you work with this and all of a sudden uh, a road out of that uh, you know they're stuck on that carousel right boom 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 and uh um or they're making this mistake over and over and it's a repetition of a past life issue kaboom and uh this will help you with meditation to access information uh from those past lives and um uh some people uh say that all pieces of presley bluestone connected to the stones of stonehenge and if you know how to do so you can access the stonehenge energy and uh connect to that ancient wisdom uh that stonehenge represents now i've never done that i don't know how to do it but i I have heard there are people who can, and uh, how cool is that, right? So uh, you can work with the stone directly. You can make an elixir. The elixir, I uh, I would put a piece of it in a sealed jar, like a with a good seal, like a baby jar, and immerse that in water. I don't like to make direct elixirs. Um, pieces of the rock and get into the water. Not all 
stones and crystals are good for you to ingest. And uh, uh, the Presley Blue Stone, I would leave out in Moonlight Charge. Moonlight Magic, Sunlight for Healing. That's that's the rule of thumb I use. And uh, um, so that's Presley Blue Stone. And uh, we'll leave it at that. There's a whole bunch of stuff that you can do with any crystal. And Presley Blue Stone is a uh, very versatile a uh, piece of rock, and I hope you uh, find some use with it. They're not expensive, not one of the more uh, available rocks for you. They're all over the place. Now, oh, I will tell you that sometimes they'll um, they'll sell you a piece, and they'll say, oh, it's uh, $200. Well, why is it $200? Oh, well, this is a piece. You know, ah, laddie, this is a piece chipped directly off of Stonehenge itself at great expense. It's like, do you, do you have any evidence? Do you have a video of you doing that? <laughs> I like, like the a little. Oh, get out of here! You're a doubter. You're a skeptic. You know, well, when, before I spend five hundred dollars on a piece of gravel, you know, it looks like a piece of gravel for driveway. I would, uh, yeah, I'd like, I'd like a little evidence of that. You know, I'm really sorry. Um, I got thrown out of a shop in Sedona because there were some uh, quartz crystals. And, uh, it was something like that. They had three quartz crystals, and they wanted $500 for them. And you know what you can get a quartz crystal for, right? You know, like $5, correct? And I said, why are you so – oh, they're from Lemuria. They're, these are these are directly from Lemuria. And uh, I said, really, the ancient uh, sister city of Atlantis? She goes, oh, yeah. And I said, do you have any evidence of that whatsoever? And her entire attitude changed on me. And uh, – and, uh, She's really cold and said, uh, I want you to leave my store now. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. I just would like some documentation that these were found on the uh, archaeological location of Lemuria or some something, you know, uh, get out. I said, oh, okay. You know, Miss Love and Light, I'll, I'll do so right now. You know, you know, there, um, but, uh, you know, be, be a, be a savvy buyer of your crystals. Okay. Savvy buyer, savvy buyer. Okay www.crystalsilenceleague.org and uh, it's time for us to go pray for a little bit and uh, we get oh my goodness look at all the prayers we get prayers um, sometimes 100 to 200 a week and um, looks like we got a lot now there's been a um, uh, anxiety and sadness sweeping uh, uh, I, I could say the world based on what I've seen uh, recently and uh, all my astrologists have shown me complex charts, uh, you know, that look like uh, uh, calculus uh, equations, you know, showing me, well, you know, Uranus is over here in uh tribe with um, the third house of Virgo and, you know, to show why, but, um, and uh, there, there's a shift occurring, definitely a shift. And um, um, I don't talk politics on the show, but we do see a, a change of um, of uh, political power uh, going on, uh, a very different approach to American leadership. And um, there there's uh, some jubilation in some quarters, some apprehension in some quarters, and uh, some wait and see um, in some quarters. And um, – uh, I believe that's got something to do with the mood, um, and um, uh, but uh, there's this uh, anxiety, this sadness, um, 
It could be the holidays coming up, but this seems to be uh, deeper, more primal than that. This is from the soul coming out. There's a release of uh, energy. And um, so let us be particularly mindful of that and uh, try to be kind. And, uh, uh, and all I can say is my hats are off to the Facebook meme masters, Facebook and Instagram meme masters. They are uh, on point and excellent. Um, uh, this uh, this season, they are uh, coming out with the uh, the funniest memes I've seen. Uh, Smudge the cat is making his uh, re- resurgence. God bless that cat, and I think it's going to be the memes that save us from ourselves. Uh, it's just a, an amazing thing. So let us uh, let's pray a little bit here. We have prayer ID nine nine four five two. Who wants us to pray that D M M comes back to JMM. God, they were meant to be together. Look at that. Um, um, that they come back together. Can't wait to see J and their three kids. D misses J and their little family that they have created together more than anything. And he's sorry about what he's done and knows that he made a mistake. D would give anything to have Jay and their little family that they have created together back with him again. Amen. May it be so. And um, prayer ID 99449, who says, uh, punish the wicked and prosecute the guilty. In Jesus' name, we pray on behalf of our and family for the sins of their mouths, for the words of their lips. Let them be caught in their pride for the curses and lies they utter because of the sinful things they say, because of the evil that is on their lips. Let them be captured by their pride, their curses and their lies. They speak sinful words, so let them be trapped by their own pride and by the curses and lies they speak. Consume them in your wrath. Consume them until they are no more. In Jesus' name, punish and prosecute the wicked. Amen. That's some wrath of Jehovah right there, man. Hallelujah. Prayer ID 99447. Please pray for better relationships with gods and spirits. Amen. Succinct and to the point. Prayer ID 99446, who says, please pray for financial blessings, avalanche of abundance, financial wisdom, increase in income, to feel good about money, to feel good about shopping for Thanksgiving and Christmas, to be able to buy goods, gifts, and items. And this is for U.S. Amen. And this is 99445. This is someone I know. Please pray for DM, who has mental issues. She accuses everyone of taking or stealing from her, threatening me, cops one day. Does anyone have a solution to help rid D of this? Please. Amen. And prayer ID. Oh, gosh, that's a repeat prayer. Uh, let me get some more up here. That's a, We have people that are posting their prayers like five times. And, uh uh, folks, I, I tell you, doing this, uh, you're only going to get many of them deleted when uh, one prayer, that's all you need. Don't, don't greedy prayer poke. God, there's like five, seven, eight, nine, ten. Um, okay, that's that's a little much there. That's a little much. Yeah, that, okay, you can't do that. Let me let me go down some more. I should have looked at this before. Sorry, I'm out of the habit here. Let me go down a little bit further. 
I'm going to be up late tonight uh, policing this uh, website. We only need a few more anyway. Uh, wow. I've gone down 40 prayers, and we still have repetitions. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Got a few more. Blessings. My daughter and I need an affordable, safe, clean, quiet place. This is prayer ID 99416. Place to live today. Please intervene with your prayers to St. Joseph. I am grateful. Amen. And prayer ID 99415. Praying that my income continues to increase no evil eye can penetrate the wall of protection my ancestors have built for me i'm newly promoted and i feel the jealousy behind my blessings amen all right now let's take a uh, few moments to pray for all those who need prayer information and blessings this season Amen. What I was dwelling on earlier was Murphy's Law. You know, Murphy's Law, anything that go wrong will go wrong. That's not uh, its original formulation, um, uh, apparently. And, you know, there have been studies, there have been books about Murphy's Law. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> the closest they can come to this, there's actually a provenance of this. Uh, there was a fellow craft lab, and his name was Captain Edward Murphy. And uh, during the experiments of crash tests, um, they were played with theirs, and it came down to like one technician, right? And uh, there was a, a a sensor that was wired backward, and uh, he remarked, if there's any way to do it wrong, this guy will, uh, referring to the um, technician. He said, if any way to do, th- do something wrong, this guy will do it. And... Uh, so that became quoted around the lab as Murphy's Law. You know, any way for something to be done wrong, you know, you'll do it. Uh, so it uh, 
turned up in uh, like a training film um, as Murphy's Law. If, if something can go wrong, um, plan for it was how it was uh, uh, said in this uh, training film, which changes um, the idea of uh, if anything can go wrong, it can. Um, uh, as, as it's known, um, if it can happen, it will happen uh, was – uh, another correlation of it. Uh, if that guy has any way of making a mistake, he will. If anything can go wrong, he will. Uh, Murphy's Law has been correlated with the second law of thermodynamics, which is entropy, which means things go from chaos, or from order to chaos. Uh, but mathematically, that's um, that's that's not um, correct, but sort of. It's, there's a kind of social ent- uh, entropy, social second law of thermodynamics um and um but there's a a, um more accurate way that it's been um uh stated in that um if anything can go wrong plan for it and uh this correlation of murphy's law is how I run my life. And I was uh, talking to my son about that. And I said, I said, uh, I said, I deal with people a lot of times that think that things are just going to work out on their own. And, uh, you know, if you just, uh, have wishful thinking, um, that, uh, it'll work out and you go, no, no. I said, right. What did I teach you raising you? What did I teach? You? He said, anticipate every possible worst case scenario and plan obsessively against it. And I said, yes, exactly. And that's closer to Murphy's law. Um, um, the original Murphy's law is, uh, Edward Murphy, um, originated. It was, um, um, if something can possibly go wrong, why let it, right? If it can go wrong, why let it? And, um, uh, there's some interesting history in it because Murphy's Law turned up long before Murphy did, right? Um, um, uh, and um, uh, interestingly enough, uh, there was a uh, a British stage magician named uh, Ma- Neville Maskelyne who said um, it's an experience common to all men, and he he wrote this in 1908. <clears throat> it's an experience common to all men to find that on any special occasion, uh, such in my profession, the production of a magical effect for the first time in public, everything that can go wrong will go wrong. This is before Edward Murphy, right? Whether we must attribute this to the malignity of matter (laughs) or to the total depravity of inanimate things. And put that in the part of your mind that remembers things, the total depravity of inanimate things. Whether the exciting cause is to hurry, worry, or whatnot, the fact remains. And um, the idea, matter, matter has a malignity, or that inanimate things have an innate depravity, just delights me. <laughs> there is an innate depravity to inanimate objects <laughs> that 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 come out of nowhere to trip you. That you know, cause your sandwich to uh, drop wrong side down. The inanimate depravity <laughs> of inanimate objects. That That's something that I'm going to remember for the rest of my life. I just think it's great. And it leads us to the um, 
discussion we're having today, we're, we're picking up where we left off. We were talking about the four noble truths of the Buddha and how it relates to magic and the practice of magic and the practice of spirituality, um, or at least the practice of spirituality. The uh, first noble truth is dukkha, dukkha, and dukkha has been um, somewhat unsatisfactorily translated as suffering, and uh, uh, it's more satisfactorily translated as unsatisfactoriness. But it's such a deep term. Um, uh, it basically means that everything, everything, um, well, it shouldn't be put that way. Nothing, nothing in life is going to be satisfactory. Nothing is permanent. Nothing uh, is conducive of happiness for long. Um, everything is going to change, and usually it will decay. And um, the um, the Buddha says that everything is impermanent, dukkha, and subject to change. And the word dukkha is explicitly used in these uh, commentaries. And it's dukkha not because there is suffering in the ordinary sense of the word, but because whatever is impermanent is dukkha. And if you're like me, um, if you're like me, uh, you like the original Pali because it's more accurate. It's yadanikam tam dukam, which is those things of impermanence are also dukkha. And so the Buddha was not pessimistic. He wasn't optimistic. He was realistic and objective. He looked at the world and said, these things are impermanent. And he says, with regard to life and the enjoyment of the sense pleasures, that one should clearly understand these things about it. He doesn't say don't don't inge- don't indulge. He doesn't say don't indulge in sense pleasures, but if you do, understand these things about them. You should clearly understand the nature of these th- three things: attraction or enjoyment. Two, the evil consequences or unsatisfactoriness, and three, the concept of freedom or liberation. You should understand these three things. If you see a pleasant and charming and beautiful person, you like him or her, and you're attracted. You enjoy seeing that person again and again, and you derive pleasure from the company of that person, and this is called enjoyment. And it is a fact of experience. People do it. And I've had this conversation with them, well, what's wrong with that? They're not saying anything's wrong with that, but you have to understand the nature of the experience. People get very defensive when you talk about this. Well, we can't always just think about suffering. Son, you think suffering all the time you're you're experiencing suffering all the time you're experiencing dukkha all the time you're kidding yourself if you don't so it's a fact of experience but this enjoyment is not permanent it's not permanent and uh, just this person and all of those attractions are not permanent everything that you find attractive and enjoyable about this person is impermanent. And when the situation changes, for instance, you, you can't see the person that they go away sometime. When you're deprived of that enjoyment, you'll become sad. Sometimes people become unreasonable. They, sometimes they become mentally imbalanced. And sometimes they become they behave foolishly. If you don't believe it, do what I do for a living two weeks. Unsatisfactory and dangerous side of this picture. It's also a fact of experience, and I, I, I could safely say most of us have been there. 
Now, if you have no attachment to the person, if you're completely non-attached, not detached, not a clinically sociopathic detachment, but non-attached, and it's a different type of thing, that is called freedom and liberation. And these three things are true with regard to every type of enjoyment in life. And um, so uh, from this evidence, there's not a question of pessimism or optimism, but we have to understand these things. Everything we take pleasure in, we are accepting the whole package. That, um, that you know, when, when, when people, you know, the sadness, we go into it, why am I sad? Okay, um, an example, uh, you know, I'm sad because I miss this person. Why do you miss the person? Why do I miss the person? And if you ask yourself why you miss the person, you'll find that there were some delusions you entertained. And many of those delusions are uh, the three big delusions. One, that you mistake the impermanent for the permanent, the lovely for the uh, uh, unlovely, and uh, dukkha for non-dukkha. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, you think it's going to be this pleasant feeling I have now is is permanent. And when it goes away, you're sad. And if you comprehend that these are are uh, states that are in continuous flux, and you truly understand it, uh, that sadness has no real control over you. Um, um, and uh, there are all of the Buddhist teachings deal with this. There, there are volumes and volumes of it, and it all deals around this basic concept. Uh, and the concept of dukkha, there are three aspects. There's dukkha is ordinary suffering that we can all understand, dukkha that's produced by change, and dukkha as conditioned states. And uh, the kinds of suffering that we understand, uh, birth, old age, sickness, death, association with unpleasant persons and unpleasant situations, separation from beloved loved ones, separation from pleasant conditions, not getting what you want, grief, lamentation, distress. These are all forms of physical and mental suffering. These are all universally accepted as suffering or pain. And this, these are included as dukkha, as ordinary suffering. Dukkha is spelled D-K-K-H-A in the Pali. I think in Sanskrit, it's, uh, it's uh, D-U-K-K-A maybe in Sanskrit. So a happy feeling and a happy condition in life, it's not permanent, not everlasting, and it'll change sooner or later. And when it changes, it will produce pain, suffering, and unhappiness. And this is included in dukkha as suffering produced by change. It is a different form of suffering. But it's very easy to understand those. You know, we understand that. We go, yeah, sure, it changes. Things change. And it causes stress. That change causes stress. And Dukkha can also be called be defined as stress. It's a stress that's caused by conditions changing, um, by conditions being what we don't want. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you another metaphor that I use to describe this in a minute. But the third form of dukkha, as conditioned states, is probably the most important philosophical concept of the first noble truth. And it is the concept I am, which gives rise to most of the 
monolithic and devastating dukkha in the world. What we call a being or an individual or I, according to Buddhism, and also according to cognitive science, is a combination of ever-changing physical and mental forces or conditions or energies, which in Buddhism can be defined and in, divided into five groups, which are called aggregates or bundles or khandhas. And every one of these are aggregates of attachment or dukkha. The five khandhas that you hear about in Buddhism are aggregates of attachment to dukkha. And it's important to understand that this is not cognitive science we're talking about. These are bundles of attachment. These five bundles are attachment to dukkha. Dukkha arises from these, and that's that's not a great way to put it. Um, but Buddha said, um, and these are the words of the man himself, Oh, bhikkhus, what is dukkha? It should be said that it is the five aggregates of attachment. And it should be understood that dukkha and the five aggregates are not two different things. The five aggregates themselves are dukkha. Now, what are they? Well, the aggregate of matter, the body, <laughs> which is a, a, a solid matter, fluid matter, heat, and motion. Um, and uh, uh, the body, the the, five, the first one is the matter. Because one thing, we identify ourselves with body. When you look in the mirror, you go, there I am. You see a picture, there I am. P part of identification of self is body, the rupa, matter. Um, then you have um, the five material sense organs, which is eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. These are the... Um, uh, well... Sometimes I call the aggregate of sensation, and uh, all the sensations are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and they're experienced through the um, uh, the contact of the eye with forms, ear with sounds, nose with odor, tongue with taste, the body with tangible objects, and the mind, which is a sense organ in Buddhism, with mind objects or thoughts or ideas. All these and mental sensations are included in this group. Now, why is mind a sense organ? Because it's an aggregate of attachment. The mind senses thoughts and ideas and becomes attached to them. You know, prove it wrong. You prove that the mind does not sense thoughts and ideas and get attached to them. Look at anything. And that's some of the most insidious type of attachment. Um, and what Buddhism means by mind, the word is manas, uh, should be clearly understand that mind is not spirit as opposed to matter. Buddhism do not recognize philosophically the idea of a spirit as opposed to matter as is accepted by most other systems of religions. Mind is a faculty or organ like the eye or the ear, not the brain. The brain is part of rupa. It's material. It can be controlled and developed like any other faculty. And the Buddha speaks quite often of the value of controlling and disciplining all six of your faculties. The mind is not set aside or different from the faculty of vision, faculty of hearing, faculty of touch. This is where you run into conflict when you're trying to talk to uh, a Westerner of logical thought, because they think of mind in a Western um, 
idea as arising from brain. And a great resistance occurs. And it's hard to get this idea across that we're talking about mind as an aggregate of attachment to thought objects. Like there's attachment to uh, pleasurable touch, attachment to pleasurable sounds, attachment to pleasurable sights. There's attachment of the mind to thoughts, ideas, rituals, rites. But this can be controlled, right? We experience different fields of the world with different senses. We can't hear colors, but we can see them. Yeah, don't. I know about synesthesia. I know about that, but we're talking about normally. We sense different fields. We can we can see sounds. We can't hear them. So the five physical senses, eye, ear, nose, tongue, and body, um, we experience only the world of visible forms, sounds, odors, tastes, and objects. But that's only a part of the world. It's not the whole world. Ideas and thoughts, they're part of the world, too. But they cannot be sensed. They can't be conceived by the faculty of the eye, ear, nose, tongue, or body. But they can be conceived by the mind. Ideas and thoughts are not independent of the world experienced by these senses. In fact, they depend on and are conditioned by physical experiences. So a person born blind cannot have ideas of color except through the analogy of sounds or some other things. Ideas and thoughts that form a part of the world are thus produced and conditioned by physical experiences and are conceived by the mind. So mind is considered a sense faculty or organ like the eye or the ear. It's kind of deep. Kind of deep. Kind of deep. So this third aggregate is perception. Sensations, perception, are of six kinds and related to the six faculties and uh, organs and external objects. And they're produced through the six faculties, um, the contact of the six faculties of the world. But perception recognizes objects. The sense organs only see them. The eye sees an object but doesn't know what it is. The ear hears the sound but doesn't know what it is. Right? You touch something. All it does is register that you're touching something, but it doesn't know what it is. So perception recognizes and marks an object. Uh, like the first time you eat a chocolate chip cookie, you taste it, you feel it, you smell it. And perception remembers and marks. Perception is memory and recognition. So it is um, uh, the storehouse of your tastes, your opinions, your sensations. If you eat a chocolate chip cookie and it tastes bad, next time you see a chocolate chip cookie, you'll, you'll think, oh, I hate those. You don't have to go through that investigation again of smelling it, touching it. Or if you like it and you see it, you go, oh, I love these things. You don't have to go through the investigation again of smelling it, tasting it, feeling it, you know. Or if you see a snake and it bites your friend and dies, every time you see a snake, you don't have to have it bite a friend and die or have it bite you. You go, oh, a snake, oh, my God. And it's it's responsible for that kind of thinking, you see. So the first one is, the, is mental formations, which is sometimes called volition. And uh, this is very important. These are all activities of will, all voluntary and volitional activities, both good and bad. And what is generally known as karma comes under this group. 
And the Buddha's own definition is very important. He says, oh, my bhikkhus, it is volition that I call karma. Having willed, one acts through body, speech, and mind. Volition is mental construction, mental activity, and its function is to direct the mind in the sphere of good, bad, or neutral activities. So just like sensation and perception, volition is of six kinds. It connects with the six internal faculties and the corresponding six objects in the external world. So you have visual, you have audio with the ear, you have taste uh, volition, you have thought volition, which is the most important kind, by the way, as it turns out. Touch, taste, etc. Now, uh, since sensations and perceptions are not volitional actions, they do not produce karmic effects. It's only volitional actions such as attention, will, determination, confidence, concentration, wisdom, energy, desire, pugnance or hate, ignorance, conceit, idea of self, etc., they can produce karmic effects. There are 52 of these mental activities which are listed in the uh, Abhidharma uh, that constitute the aggregate of mental formations. There are many lists in uh, uh, Theravadan Buddhism, many lists. Uh, there are 52 mental formations, and I will tell you that with each mental formation, there is a list of attributes that arise with them. Uh, it's 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 like a tree, and uh, the fifth is the aggregate of consciousness. And consciousness is not self awareness as it is in um, uh, Western thought. Consciousness is a reaction or a response, which has uh, one of the six faculties: eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind as its basis, and one of the six external phenomena, which is visible form or a sound or a smell or a taste or some tangible object or a thought as its object. Consciousness is connected to the other faculties. So consciousness is also six kinds, right? Consciousness does not recognize an object. That's perception. Consciousness is awareness, awareness of the presence of an object. So when the eye comes in contact with a color, for instance, blue, visual consciousness arises, which simply is awareness of the presence of a color, but it doesn't recognize that it's blue. There's no recognition at this stage. It's perception that recognizes that it's blue. So the term visual consciousness is a philosophical expression um, that denotes the same idea that's made by the ordinary word seeing. Visual consciousness is seeing. Audio consciousness is hearing. Gustatory consciousness is tasting. But it doesn't recognize. It's not like saying, oh, I'm tasting salt. Perception identifies as a salt. You see the, the, the two different processes. So understand, though, and this is what's very interesting. According to Buddhist philosophy, there's no spirit or ego or self as opposed to matter, uh, and that consciousness should not be taken as spirit in opposition to matter. And that's got to be particularly understood, you see. So there's no inner spirit or core that is thinking these thoughts or 
perceiving these things or having consciousness of these things. Isn't that something? Um, so who or what's thinking the thought? Who or what is tasting the salt? Well, the five aggregates working together. Um, there was a uh, disciple that Buddha had named Sati who went around teaching that Buddha taught the same consciousness that transmigrates and wanders about and is reborn. And the Buddha said, Buddha was uh, got talk about that. It's very interesting to read that. People thought Buddha that butter couldn't melt in his mouth, but he uh, he could get salty. He said, bring that fool to me. That's what it says. Bring that fool to me. And they did. And he said, oh, foolish man, when did I ever say such a thing? He said, Who, to whomever, you stupid one. This is what he said. Have you heard me expounding the doctrine in this manner? Haven't I in many ways explained consciousness as arising out of conditions, that there is no arising of consciousness without conditions? Then the Buddha went on um, to explain, consciousness is named according to whatever condition through which it arises. On account of the eye and visible forms arises a consciousness, and it's called visual consciousness. He goes down the whole list. Then the Buddha explained it further by an illustration. A fire is named according to the material on which it burns. A fire may burn on account of wood. It's called wood fire. It may burn on account of straw, and it's called straw fire. So consciousness is named according to the condition through which it arises. So dwelling on this point, Buddhaghosa, who was a great commentary, said, A fire that burns on account of wood burns only when there's a supply, but it dies down in that very place when the supply is no longer there, because then the condition has changed. But the fire does not cross over to splinters and become a splinter fire. Even so, the consciousness that arises on account of the eye and visible forms arises in that gate of sense organ only. When there is the condition of the eye, visible forms, light, and attention, but ceases then and there when that conditions no more. It does not cross over the ear and become auditory consciousness and so on. So consciousness may exist having matter as its means, matter as its object, matter as its support. And in seeking delight in this, right, it can grow, increase, and develop, or consciousness may exist having sensation, perception, or mental formation. And seeking delight in it, it may grow, increase, and develop. And were a man to say, I shall show the coming, the going, the passing away, the arising, the growth, the increase, or the development of consciousness apart from matter, sensation, perception, and mental formations, he would be speaking of something that does not exist. So he was very adamant upon this form. So what we call a being or an individual or I is a convenient name or a label given to the combination of these five groups, and they all are impermanent. They're all impermanent and all constantly changing, and Whatever is impermanent is dukkha. Yadanikam tam dukkham. This is the true meaning of the Buddha's words. In brief, the five aggregates of attachment are dukkha. They're not the same for any two consecutive moments. Here A is not equal to A. They're in a flux of momentary arising and disappearing. And he says, 
O Brahman, it is just as a mountain river flowing far and swift, taking everything along with it. There's no moment, no instant, no second when it stops flowing, but it goes on flowing. And continuing, so Brahman is human life like a mountain river. And as the Buddha told his son, the world is in continuous flux and is impermanent. One thing disappears and it conditions the appearance of the next thing in a series of cause and effect. And so there's no unchanging substance in them, nothing behind them that can be called a permanent self, individuality, or anything that can be in reality be called an I, not only in ourselves, but the whole world. Nothing. Nothing can be called has I nature. And everybody can agree that neither matter nor sensation nor perception or any one of those mental activities nor consciousness can really be called I or self. But when you place them together and they work together, uh, there is a physio-psychological machine or process, and we get the idea of I. But it's a concept. It's not – a lot of people say it's a false idea. It's an illusion, but it's not an illusion. It's a functional construction, not an illusion. He never says there's no such thing as a self. There are people that say anatta means no self. It does not. It means not self. He said these things are not self. He never says there's no self. Obviously, you exist, right? I mean, obviously, you exist. He never said you don't exist. That That's, a, that's an incorrect interpretation of this. But these things, he said, show me where self exists. Is it this? No. 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 That there is a functional creation of the five aggregates working together that create the sense of self, and every one of them is an attachment to dukkha. Purpose of this teaching. He's not trying to argue that there's no soul that uh, goes to heaven. That's not, not his concern. He says, look, there's all this crap happening in the world, everything from toddlers squabbling over toys to guys fighting in a bar over politics and women and each other and great devastating wars in the world. And it's all because of this idea of self and tanha, greed, every bit of it, no exception, every bit of it because of this. No exception. And he, he invited the world to prove me wrong. And people would come to argue with him, the Brahmins and the Sikhs, the, uh, 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 the Jains. They, they would come and argue with him, and he would just say, well, let me ask you a few questions. And eventually the, the people that came to argue with him would become his, uh, his disciples because they couldn't prove him wrong. He would say it, would, it, it is as if, and he would uh, give them back, and uh, because they would come to him with theory, and he would just give them facts. He said, "Let me let me tell you how the world is." So there's no unmoving mover behind the movement. Uh, Buddha Gosa said, "Mere suffering exists, but no sufferer can be found. The deeds are, but no doer is found." So I feel sad. Who is who is sad? Who is it feeling sad? Well, I am. Who is I? There is sadness. And by this method, we understand that we do not define ourselves by what we feel. We don't exist in that realm. We don't become the sadness unless we make the mistake, the sometimes fatal mistake, that we are the aggregate of feelings. 
you see. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? Because all of the aggregates of suffering are ways to uh, think of your think of yourself as I. I am my body. I am my feelings. I am my thoughts. I am my sensations. Uh, these are all ways to think of yourself as I. But if you eliminate any one of those, the whole structure falls apart. You eliminate thought, you don't have a human being. You eliminate all the senses, you don't have a human being. You eliminate the body, you don't have a human being. You eliminate volition, you don't have a human being. Or you don't have any kind of any any kind of sentient creature. You eliminate any one of the five aggregates. No con- no uh, sentient human being can exist. They work together. So, but we identify with that, and those are the aggregates of suffering. So the feelings that we have, and believe me, the hostility that uh, some hostility. Well, my feelings are important. No, they're, they're really not. They're really not, because the feelings are an aggregate of suffering, and you know. Doesn't what I, don't my needs and my wants matter? Your needs and your wants are why you're suffering. And um, of course, when when people call someone like me, they don't want a lesson in Buddhism. They really don't. They want they want they want um, uh, comfort, and they want someone to listen to them. And that's what I do. That's my job. That's what I do. I, I listen and I provide comfort. And if someone is ready, and they want to understand why they're suffering, and they want to move past it, then these are the things we talk about. But you don't listen to my show. For, for, you don't listen to my show for me to tell you that everything is going to be okay if you just w- wish it so. There's a gap between the way the world is and the way we want it to be. This is the noble truth, and it's also the second, by the way. And the bigger that gap, the more this tension, the more the stress, the more the suffering. Because that is dukkha. That gap is dukkha. The way the world is and the way the world we want it to be. The bigger that gap. Imagine the suffering of control freaks, how big the gap is. Imagine they're, imagine they're suffering. Oh my goodness. Um, if, if you want a simple explanation, there's, there it is. There's the way the world is, the way people are, and the way we want it to be. In that gap lies all the dukkha and suffering in the world. Oh, we're, once again, you've wasted another hour of your time. So um, We'll be back most likely next week. And uh, You guys be safe. Be careful. Um, and it's time for us to uh, go to our outro music. So the Reverend loves you. See you again.